Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune and this week's episode is The French Wars of Religion, Part 3. Welcome back. Before I start today, I wanted to let you know that due to the scheduling hiccup that has been my personal life recently, I won't be able to finish this mini-series before the end of the year. I will be releasing Charles Cardinal de Bourbon on Boxing Day. For my American listeners, that's the 26th of December. And then covering Isabella Clara Eugenia and Charles of Valois in the new year. I also just wanted to remind you all to check the feed on Christmas. I will be releasing a Christmas special again this year. I think I'll be discussing another important event that happened on the 25th of December. Any guesses? Now, on to this week's episode. I'll be starting with the Fourth War of Religion. It is a short one, though. The Fourth War basically started with the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre and is almost an extension of it. There were a few cities besieged, including La Rochelle, which was besieged by Anjou. And a reminder, Anjou is Henri, the younger brother of Charles IX. In one of the most interesting historical decisions, on the 16th of May, 1573, so about nine months after the initial outbreak of violence, Anjou was elected King of Poland. Yeah, weird, I know. He campaigned for it. Not in person, he sent someone. Note, at this point, I will still call him Anjou, but he will be busy in Poland for a while. This election led to the Edict of Boulogne in June 1573. Much of the earlier freedoms granted to the Huguenots in the Peace of Saint-Germain-en-Laye were granted in this one. Outside of the cities of La Rochelle and the two other Protestant-held cities, Calvinist worship was banned. Oh, and then it was only allowed in private homes. So a poor moment for Protestants in France, but at least they weren't being besieged by Anjou anymore. Now, there's some peace. And with that pause before the next war, which is coming, I need to discuss the royal family. Much like Philip IV, more than... 200 years earlier, Henri II and Catherine de' Medici had so many sons, it seemed impossible that their male line would fail. Their oldest, Francis II, is deceased at this point in our story. You should also remember that the king is currently Charles IX, the second surviving son of the couple. His younger brother, Henri, whom I'll keep calling Anjou for a while, 
is now the king of Poland, as I mentioned earlier, and he's crowned there on the 22nd of February, 1574. Charles and Henri's youngest brother, youngest surviving brother, Hercule Francis, is 18 at this point, and it's him I want to focus on for a moment. Hercule was his name at birth, and in English we would say this Hercule, like Hercules. But he had taken the name of his oldest brother, Francis, the late Francis II, when he was 13 as part of his confirmation. Since he had one of the more unique names in French royal history, I'll stick to calling him Hercule Francis. Interestingly, for longtime listeners, he's the Duke of Alençon at this time, so not even slightly unique for this show. Just wanted to make sure you know who each of the royal princes are in this time period. One further reminder, Henri of Navarre and Prince Condé are both temporarily Catholic and under royal guard at this point. This prevents them from acting as a rallying point for the Huguenot cause. So that side was stuck for a bit, hence why they were able to put through a rather unfair edict. However, there was someone else they could look to for potential leadership. Yeah, it's, uh, it's Urkel. I know, a bit unexpected for one of the royal princes to go all Calvinist, but he did. He agreed to join the cause, but only if they could smuggle him out of court. Remember, he's stuck there with everyone else. This didn't happen, but there were plans, and overall, things did calm down when Anju left for Poland. Sadly, things didn't stay calm for long, because life is just like that. On the 30th of May, 1574, Charles IX died. He was 23. He had been depressed basically since the massacre, which isn't surprising when we remember he allowed or ordered the murder of members of his own council and court along with so many other citizens. I may not have made it clear earlier, but he and Colony were close. He had basically ordered the murder of one of his friends. Now. Charles IX had been married to Elizabeth of Austria, and the couple had one child, a daughter, Marie Elizabeth. The little girl was one and a half when her father died. Being a girl, she wasn't able to succeed. Her mother would leave France a bit more than a year later, and the little girl would be raised by the French royal family. Since Charles's only child was a daughter, he was succeeded by his brother Anjou, who, as you'll remember, was the king of Poland. Well, Anjou found out that he was the king of France now, and he basically ran away from Poland. They even sent him notice that if he didn't return, he would be replaced, and he didn't respond. Yeah, pretty harsh for Poland. Six months after Charles IX's death, Henri de Montmorency, the second son of the late constable Anne Montmorency, defected to the Huguenot cause. Now, I did forget to tell you something important earlier. Colony was actually Anne Montmorency's nephew. Oh yes, everyone is related. This means that Henri Montmorency was Colony's cousin and had been suspected of being a Protestant earlier, but had always denied the charge. He had been the governor of Languedoc for more than 10 years, and this will come up towards the end of this episode. Just remember that for now. There were also, over this period, various Huguenot uprisings that had some impact, but nothing too big to worry about. 
Big heads up here, at some point before 1575, Prince Condé escaped from French court. I have looked through all the books that I'm using for this and I cannot find out how he managed to do this or the exact date. One random blog I found online says it occurred during one of Hercule's attempts to leave court and Prince Condé fled to Germany and was able at this point to act as a leader in exile. Anjou, now Henri III of France, which is what I'll be calling him, was crowned on the 14th of February, 1575. And again, I will call him Henri of France, just to make it easier because we're about to get into a lot of Henri's. The day after his coronation, he married Louise of Lorraine. No massacres occurred after this wedding, so that's a win. In April, Henri of France was hoping to negotiate with a Huguenot, because really, that is just what new kings have to do. Remember, new king means making sure all the earlier treaties or edicts still stood. Things were looking okay for the Catholic and royal faction, which are separating properly at this point until September of 1575, when Erklu managed to flee the capital. Oops. Henri of Navarre doesn't escape until 1576, and I, again, can't find details of how he managed it. I looked through all my sources and just, I can't find it. I assume he got lucky when his guards were distracted. And not long after escaping, Henri renounced his Catholic conversion, and yes, that does make him a relapsed heretic. His sister was reappointed as his regent in Navarre, and she will stay in that role for a long time. But this next bit isn't really about Henri of Navarre. No, instead, it's about the brotherly relationship between Henri of France and Urkel. I hadn't really mentioned it, but Henri of France was his mother's favorite child, and this is recorded in multiple sources. Urkel was probably the least favorite of her sons, and her least favorites were sadly her amazing daughters. Urkel Francis's supporters were called the Malcontents. I know, it's a great name. These men were a mix of Catholics and Huguenots, and they included, of course, Henri of Navarre, Prince Condé, Henri of Montmorency, and others. In addition to religious safety, the group was trying to prevent Henri of France's goals of absolutism. This group began to besiege Paris in 1576. By April, Henri of France was done and negotiated the Peace of Monceux, primarily with his brother, hence the name, Monceux being the address of the oldest younger brother of the king and highly associated with this specific younger brother of the king. Henri of France and Charles IX had both been addressed by this honorific earlier, but for some reason it's very much associated with Urkel. This piece was promulgated as the Edict of Boulay, and Henri of France basically forced it through Parlement. The edict gave the religion prétendue-réformée, the supposed reformed religion, that's what it means in French, the new description for the Huguenots, the right to practice openly everywhere except Paris and court. They could build churches and were being treated like proper citizens with their religion legally respected. This was huge, and the response from the Catholics will be huge, as you will see in a moment. By September of 1577, most of the rights that had been gained by this edict were removed. 
the Treaty of Bergerac codified this. With his brother's defection and the escape of his two highest-ranking hostages, though, Omri of France needed another layer of support. His mother, Catherine de' Medici, would still be involved. He was her favorite son, and she wanted to support his reign. But this episode isn't about her. She is getting her own. But Henri of France knew that there was one group that in theory would support him, the Catholics. And this is the response I was talking about. I mentioned earlier in the last episode that the Catholic League didn't even come into existence until 1576. This entire time I've covered to this point, there hasn't been an official Catholic military group. But now there was. The Catholics had usually supported the politiques. To be very clear, Henri of France did not found the Catholic League. It was actually rather organic. Local Catholics in various cities formed their own confraternities to stand against the reformers. These groups communicated with each other in a close confederation until 1576. After the Edict of Boulay, these groups became a bit more organized and Henri of France managed to place himself at the head of this initial Catholic League. This wasn't popular with most members of this newly formed League. Despite Henri of France's general pro-Catholic stance, he was still political in nature. Once the Treaty of Bergerac replicated the Edict of Boulay, the National League was basically defunct and the local League stopped meeting. There was a Minor Fifth War in 1579, which ended in November of 1580, after Prince Condé took the town known as Fliex. The Treaty of Fliex was signed at the end of November 1580. This treaty restored Huguenot rights. Urkel negotiated this treaty as well. And for the moment, things were relatively peaceful in France. I shouldn't forget that in 1579, an influential tract was published, one that I'm a fan of in theory. Vindicie contra Tyrannus, Defense Against the Tyrants, which was published under the pseudonym Stephen Unius Brutus. So I'm guessing this guy's first name was Stephen, or he was hoping to be martyred in the fight for Protestantism. Because I don't want to assume that everyone gets biblical references. Saint Stephen is regarded as the first Christian martyr. And for those who don't know, Unius Brutus are the nomen and cognomen of Marcus Unius Brutus, often just called Brutus, who is probably the most famous person to stand up to a tyrant in 30 AD. The tyrant was Julius Caesar, and A2 Brute from Shakespeare is talking about Brutus. I'm putting a link to a free download for this pamphlet in the show notes. I hope you'll take the time to read it. It ask four big questions as chapters, and each of these four questions are covered through multiple discussion points. The link I've included is an English translation of the original French. It does assume knowledge of biblical history and works, so if you haven't spent time studying this recently, be ready to Google, which is great. We should all admit when we don't know things. I spend my day finding out new things. I will warn you that it's more than 200 pages long, so it's not a short read. I really do like books written about the questions of tyranny and tyrannicide. While France was peacefulish, Urkel had been trying to woo Elizabeth I of England. Though she and he apparently became engaged, the wedding did not happen. Spoilers, Elizabeth actually never married. 
He returned to the continent and began making some problems in the Netherlands. He had been invited by William the Silent to become king of the United Provinces. No one had asked the people of the United Provinces, though, what they wanted. Urkel's time as the leader of the area was short-lived, and in the inn he took Antwerp, but was quickly expelled when his troops were ambushed. His mother, Catherine, actually told him she wished he had died young, and Elizabeth broke off their supposed engagement. It appears that he had contracted malaria while in the Low Countries. He died on the 10th of June, 1584, at 29. Which means there was only Henri of France, and then next in line was suddenly Henri III of Navarre, a Huguenot. The Catholics of France were appalled, and this will lead to the country almost almost, giving up Salic law. It probably didn't help that Henri of Navarre's heir was Prince Conde. To note, Charles IX, Henri of France's older brother and predecessor, was the only son of Henri II to have a legitimate child, his daughter, Marie Elizabeth, who had sadly actually died at this point. Henri of France, the current king, was married, but he had no children by his wife. Unlike other kings, he didn't feel the need to take a new one, so it was highly unlikely that he would have a child. And this is actually much to his and his wife's regret. They did seem to care for each other greatly, but it looked like they couldn't have children together. And now we get to the big war in the wars of religion. The War of the Three Henrys, or in French, Guerre des Trois Henri. For those keeping track, This is the eighth war in the wars of religion. I may have gotten a number wrong at some point back there, but we're at eight. And in case you're curious, the three Henri's named are Henri III of France, Henri III of Navarre, and Henri of Lorraine, Duke de Guise. And after this message, you'll hear more. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is also where we see the three groups of the wars of religion clearly. Henri of France was the head of the politiques. Henri of Navarre was the head of the Huguenots, supported by the English, as in Elizabeth I. And a fourth Henry can be found in this group. Prince Condé is actually an Henri. And the Duc de Guise was now the head of the reformed Catholic League. And they had the financial backing of Philip II of Spain. Remember him? I'm not going to go through each battle of the wars of the three Henrys. That would probably not actually be interesting. Instead, I'm going to focus on the political movements. Now, while Henri of France had placed himself at the head of the first itineration of the League, he couldn't manage that with the second. The League was appalled at the idea that a Protestant could be the King of France. There were even attempts at the University of Paris to legalize that Henri of Navarre couldn't be heir to the throne using two main arguments, which actually cancel each other out. The first argument was that Henri of Navarre's father, Antoine, had never officially been the premier prince du son because he had died prior to the death of all of the royal princes. They were ignoring that it hadn't really worked that way in the past. It hadn't previously mattered if a father with a claim had died prior to earlier claimants. The whole Valois Angoulême claim came from Charles of Angoulême, who was never the Premier Ponce du Son. That was Louis of Orléans, who became Louis XI. It was a weak argument and feels a bit like a dog chasing its tail. There had never been a need for one to be the Premier Ponce du Son to succeed to the throne. The second argument they made was via proximity of blood. And you may remember this from an earlier This Too Shall Pass episode. It's the idea that a person more closely related by generations should be the heir and not the descendant of a senior line. So a sibling had precedence over a child. Using this legal argument, though, they claim that Henri of Navarre's Catholic uncle, Charles, Cardinal de Bourbon, should be the heir because he was closer to the current line by one generation over Henri of Navarre. The Catholic League, who was both in support of and supported by the University of Paris, was also willing to allow a woman to possibly be made the heir. It probably helped that this heir was Isabella Clara Eugenia, whose father, Philip II of Spain, was financing them. Despite this level of support, though, the Catholic League only has a hollow victory. In the end, Henri of Navarre will win. How, you ask? The truth is, he lived longer than everyone else, but it's a bit more complicated than that. Here is the simple fact. 
In France, the king, at least in the Capetian period and prior, was elected. Yes, but the nobility was usually told by the last king to elect his oldest son as the king. And they did, except for those few times in the Carolingian period when they didn't. When Philip V became king, he was technically elected, and the whole Salic law thing was a big excuse. Really, in fact, one of the arguments against Henri of Navarre was that Salic law had been written by a pagan, which was technically correct because Clovis was a pagan at the time the law was written, but philosophically disingenuous since his conversion to Christianity makes him one of the most important French kings and he is in fact celebrated in France for it and was at the time. The reason I'm pointing this out is that in theory, France could have just not had a war and waited until Henri of France died and elected a new king. The problem was there weren't a lot of good choices around. The Duc de Guise wasn't really royal, and while firmly Catholic, he might have been a little too Catholic. As for the royal family, the only sister of Henri of France to have a child was his sister Claude, and her oldest son, Henri, I'm not joking, it's another Henri, was in his early 20s. He may have been an option, had a few things turned out differently. But at the start of the war, his father, the Duke of Lorraine, Charles, was technically neutral. The nobility of the kingdom could also have picked a completely unrelated person as king. I'm, I'm kidding, everyone is related. And I should probably note that the Catholic Church would, in theory, be required to approve their choice. But in all reality, having three factions with various nobles divided between them meant that France was unlikely to agree on one leader to succeed Henri of France. As many of you have probably already guessed, the Catholic League and the Politiques were on close to the same page at the start of the war. This alliance was one of political expediency for the latter and a fight for the soul of France for the former. The war started out poorly for the outnumbered Huguenots. Prince Condé didn't seem to realize how bad his numbers were, and Henri of Navarre, he, he wrote a lot, <laughs> yes. Henri of Navarre, like his grandmother, Marguerite of Angoulême, knew how to use the written word to get his ideas out there. He, like most Protestants, was also well-educated on the books of the Bible and was able to use the philosophy and history contained within these to bolster his cause. By late 1586, Henri of France had reached out to Henri of Navarre to begin negotiations, and these failed because neither man trusted each other that much. But importantly, this hurt Henri of France's standing with the Catholic League, and this loss of standing will come back to bite him very soon. The following year, 1587, saw further involvement of the English funding, German and Swiss mercenaries, and the first Huguenot victory. The Germans had come in support of Henri of Navarre and the Swiss in support of Henri of France. But Henri of France didn't trust his Swiss supporters and sent them away. As they were leaving the country, the Germans recruited them. It looked like there might be a second Huguenot victory, but instead, the combined German-Swiss forces were routed by Henri of Guise in a surprise attack. 
This attack protected Paris from Huguenot forces, but it also made Henri of France look bad. Guise was rightly given all the credit for the protection of Paris and Henri of France. Well, he was about to have a rather few bad months. The city of Paris wasn't supporting Henri of France any more than they were basically legally required to. Henri of France told Henri de Guise to stay out of Paris, but de Guise ignored this and was welcomed as a hero in April of 1588. Henri of France decided the proper response to this was to call up his remaining Swiss troops, which he had quartered in the city. This quartering was illegal. Paris, like London, has its own special set of rules, and quartering foreign troops was against these rules. Henri of France also tried to ferret out Guise supporters to expel them from the city by ordering a census for the 12th of May, 1588. This gave Guise and the Catholic League the excuse they needed. Guise, along with the Spanish ambassador, who helped Spain switch to supporting the Catholic League, used a little political theater. On the 12th of May, 1588, instead of a census happening, the people of Paris rose up against the king in a spontaneous uprising. As you can tell, I am pretty confident that Guise and the Spanish ambassador planned this whole thing. Further proof is that they closed all but one gate of the city, kind of forcing the king out that one gate. The following day, the French king did just that and fled to Chartres. While this can be seen as a win for Guise and possibly his chance at making himself king, it would actually lead directly to his downfall and an outcome of this war that would have surprised those who had lived through it. Henri of France was forced to sign the Edict of Union in July 1588. This edict removed Henri of Navarre from the succession and again outlawed Huguenots in France. It's a really original document. Guise's plans to have himself made King of France were given a blow in August of that year when the Spanish Armada was defeated by the English. This removed the ability of Spain to support the Catholic League momentarily. And then Guise's aim of becoming king was dealt its final blow. He was assassinated by the Quarant Sink. Yeah, that is the way to not become king. This group is Henri of France's personal bodyguard. And at the time, Guise had been planning to kill Henri of France and the King of France struck first. Now, I should back up a bit prior to the assassination. Henri of France had called the Estates General. The first estate was controlled by Cardinal de Guise and Cardinal de Bourbon, the latter an uncle of Henri of Navarre but a staunch leaguer. The former was also a leaguer. The second estate was also led by a leaguer, one who had helped to drive Henri of France from Paris. And the third estate was also led by a leaguer. It looked really bad for Henri of France, but the king was able to get a few cutting blows, reminding the leading Frenchman that he was the king and would remember if they committed treason in the future. I should note that trying to usurp the king is treason, looking at you, Duke de Guise. The leaguers told the king they were upset with his behavior towards the church, and they really wanted him to name someone other than Henri of Navarre as his successor. 
they also threatened to take away some of his tax revenue. As you can imagine, this didn't sit well with Henri of France, and he blamed Guise. There were further quarrels between these two Henri's, including Guise's brother, referring to Guise as king at a rather presumptive family meal. Their sister suggested that she give Henri of France a haircut. And I, I do promise you that that is a really funny historical joke. And when I get to the first kingdom of the Franks, the Merovingians, you will all laugh. So remember this for that. Regardless of all of us not getting the joke, Henri of France understood it well when it was reported to him. And just so he isn't left out, Henri of Navarre was, he was not around. He was in Navarre, which makes sense when you remember all of this is taking place in autumn and winter, a time when leaving the mountain kingdom would not be easy. The French king and his supporters planned the assassination of Guise in mid-December and carried it out on the 23rd of December. Henri of France himself didn't kill Guise. That would have been far too lowbrow. Instead, as I mentioned earlier, his personal bodyguard did so. These were the Quarant Sink, the 45. These men worked in three rotations of 15 to protect Henri of France at all times. Oddly, the same group, made up of different men, would support Henri of Navarre in full as well. On the 24th of December, Cardinal de Guise was assassinated. When Henri of Navarre learned of their deaths, he was saddened. Remember, these were his cousins, and in fact, also the king's cousins, because everyone's related. The brothers' bodies were either burnt or buried in anonymous graves. I should note that there was actually a third Guise brother, Charles, the Duke of Mayence, who would take up the cause his brothers died for. The Duke de Guise was succeeded by his 17-year-old son, who was imprisoned by the royal family at this point. And interestingly, the younger Duke de Guise will support his cousin, Henri of Navarre, in the long run. Cardinal de Bourbon, Henri of Navarre's uncle, and Henri of France's cousin, and the late Henri de Guise's cousin as well, had been taken into royal control prior to the assassinations and was then kept under royal control. I don't want to share his whole story here since he'll be getting his own episode, but he'll be under royal control for a bit. As you can imagine, the assassination of a senior duke and cardinal did not go over well with the French population. While the estates were made aware of the power of the king and the first two estates purged the leaguers from their number, the third estate, though, still stood up against the king. The church as well did not approve, which isn't surprising. Killing a cardinal is usually quite looked down on. They declared Henri of France a tyrant, and church leaders sought an excommunication from the Pope. The Pope Sixtus V demanded the king come to Rome to explain his actions. Henri of France never made it to Rome. He actually reached out to his cousin, Henri of Navarre, and the two men came to an agreement, which was released publicly. This document reads like a plea to his people that Henri of France was looking out for their religious health. He declared that he wanted Henri of Navarre to convert to Catholicism, and the pair began to retake France after their agreement in April 1589. They were besieging the city of Paris by the end of July 1589. On the 1st of August, Henri of France was visited by a friar 
Jacques Clément. Clément was given an audience with the king and stabbed him to death. As many of you may know, Henri of France didn't die right away. It actually looked like he might survive. And yet again, if penicillin had been around, he might. He told his officers to support Henri of Navarre. And the following day, on the 2nd of August, the last Valois king died. His mother, Catherine de' Medici, had died in January of that year, so she did not live long enough to see her last son die. And I like to think the universe gave her that one kindness. While legally and by tradition, Henri of Navarre was now Henri IV of France, it would take him four years to actually hold the throne. The Catholic League initially recognized our next subject, Cardinal de Bourbon, Henri of Navarre's uncle, who was, yet again, still under royal control. The League's second choice, when Cardinal de Bourbon didn't work out, was the subject that will follow Cardinal de Bourbon, Isabella Clara Eugenia. Spoilers for those two episodes, Henri of Navarre will become the actual King of France in 1593, publicly doing the opposite of what his father, Antoine de Bourbon, had done in secret, renouncing his religion. Henri IV of France decided that he didn't want to keep battling his people. He wanted to lead them to a better France. And he did in many ways. His conversion to Catholicism stopped opposition to his rule, and slowly but surely, his former enemies joined him. Henri IV did maintain a care for his Protestant upbringing. He would issue the Edict of Nantes in 1598, granting Huguenots many rights, basically establishing that their religion wasn't a barrier to their participation in the state. This document is impressive. It separated one's religious beliefs from one's civic duty. This is a basic ideal accepted in a pluralistic society. And he did this in 1598. His grandson, Louis XIV, would revoke this almost 100 years later. Louis XIV's decision had some pretty bad impacts on France, and it led to an expulsion of Protestants from France. It was rather unimpressive to France's neighbors, since directly to the east was a rather large Protestant population. Now, there is a, a story that Henri IV said Paris is worth a mass. There's no actual historical record of him saying this, but I do always think that's a lovely story. I hope you'll join me next week for Cardinal de Bourbon. And thank you all again, one more time, for being so understanding. Please check out the YouTube channel. And if you're interested in special episodes, please come join us on Patreon. I'll see you all soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PastPod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at pastpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash pastpod. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.